0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: This is Good Night, Maryland Radio with your host, Nina Bosky. It's been more than 50 years since the tragic death of one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time, and in history, Marilyn Monroe. Nina seeks to uncover the life and death of this legendary star as it coincides with the pre-production of the feature film, Good Night, Marilyn. You'll get a chance to question, explore, and discover the secrets surrounding what really happened that fateful night back in 1962. Let's start the conversation. Here is the host of Good Night, Marilyn Radio, Nina Boski.
2: Relative humidity, 62%. The temperature humidity index stands at 73, and the wind is calm. Marilyn Monroe is dead, apparently from an overdose of sleeping pills. But an investigation is now going on, and no final conclusion has been reached. Here is the statement from Deputy Coroner Cronkite.
1: On the basis of all the information obtained, it is our opinion that the case is a probable suicide.
3: Hi everyone. I'm Nina Bosky for Goodnight Maryland Radio and welcome to the show as we explore the investigation, the life, and the movie all surrounding MM herself. Well, as Goodnight Maryland fans, we're growing around the world each and every week and we have some shout-outs. Brenda from Stockton, California, Winnie from Fresno, California, Debbie from Chicago, Illinois, Brent from Naples, Florida, Suzanne from Cork, Ireland, Kenny from Belfast, Ireland. Betsy from Ashland, Oregon. Johan from Izmir, Turkey. John from Barcelona, Spain Brian from Hamburg, Pennsylvania and Christina from Hallsville, Texas Hello Maryland fans and it's because of you and this story that we're shedding some great light on this mystery that's been haunting us for over 53 years Well, we have a very special radio show this week as we have Dr. Reef Kareem a psychiatrist and addiction specialist on with us He's also one of our experts on the real life investigation team who will be joining us this September on this worldwide event at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Mark your calendar, save the date, September 23rd through the 25th, it'll be a, a global uh, live streaming event. So if you can't make it here to Los Angeles, you're certainly going to have the opportunity to be able to watch it live and on demand. So very excited about that. So save the date, and we'll have more details coming up uh, uh, in June. So we'll be able to though discuss with him today what should have been the doctor's responsibility in their role, and what what really part did they play in Maryland's care. Good, bad, or the not-so-pretty as we're we're, uh, finding out, especially in today's standards. There are so many conflicting stories, it becomes difficult to really understand who's telling the truth and who's making up these stories. Well, this season, Season 3, we are taking an in-depth look at what is really going on as we dissect the 1982 DA report. You know, there's a lot of information in the DA report about the pathology, but not so much about the doctors and their treatment of Maryland at the time. But before we get into this week's show, I have some special people to uh, thank. And one of them is Randall Libero, our executive producer of Goodnight Maryland. I also want to thank Voice America Radio Networks, Mike Sergit, our engineer, and of course Jennifer, our social media person, who takes not only uh, the social media messages, but a lot of our emails. And of course, our panel and Good Night, Maryland fans, we would not be here without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Because, you know, I also know how how passionate you guys feel about what we're talking about, I'm also going to ask you to do something. Please go to our Good Night, Maryland uh, petition page, uh, our, our website page. There is a tab at the top of the web's website that says Sign the Petition. Go ahead, sign the petition, share it with your friends, even if it's five friends. It doesn't have to even be your whole database, but I'm going to say, you know, share it with your whole database. That way, if we can go ahead and reach that number by August, uh, L.A. officials are taking note, and this is an important case uh, simply because Right now, we're dealing with the forensics. We're dealing with uh, the mental um, health in terms of Maryland, which plays an important part. And if at the very least that we could do with this, with this, uh, with Maryland's passing, is to really provide the ability to give the most accurate information to date. The accurate information to date. And if it becomes undetermined, it becomes undetermined. But to say right now based on all the information we've even given you thus far all of us are speculating we don't really know if she committed suicide we don't have enough of information and based on today's standards and we're going to hear this from from Dr. Reef today What would it be deemed, knowing what we know now? So last week, we had Dr. Scott Bon on as we started to transition into the doctor's role in Marilyn's death, especially on the heels of Prince's passing and many other stars over the last few years, from Anna Nicole Smith, Michael Jackson to Heath Ledger, Whitney Houston, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and now Prince, being at the center of a death investigation. And speaking of Prince, uh, Dr. Michael Schulenberg, who is, uh who was Prince's uh, doctor at the time, he was at Paisley Park when Prince died. According to TMZ, obtained a search warrant to seize the doctor's medical records and more specifically prescriptions he wrote for the, for the singer. Interesting enough. Did that really happen? We'll find out for Marilyn's death. As we previously reported, Dr. Schulenberg saw Prince on April 7th and 20th, the day before Prince died. He also wrote prescriptions for Prince that were to be filed uh, filled at Walgreens, the pharmacy Prince visited four times in the last seven days of his death, or of his life, I should say. It turns out a rep from the facility uh, said that the doctor left in the last few days but would not say if he was terminated or just quit. You know, it's interesting that it has taken 53-plus years to really look at the issue of the doctor's role in a patient's death when prescribing these very lethal combinations of drugs. I'm sure that when Michael, you know, with the Michael Jackson case only a few years ago, authorities have become more sensitive to the subject. You know, as Dr. Bond said, who was on with us last uh, last week in his psychology today article also said that the rise in overdose deaths in the US parallels to 300% increase since 1999 and the sale of powerful painkillers such as Vicodin and Oxycontin. These drugs were involved in 14,800 overdose deaths in 2008, more than cocaine and heroin combined. Guys, we need to wake up to this epidemic that is right in front of us, and we're not dealing with it. Maryland back in 1962 was one of the most well-known cases of celebrity overdoses, and we are still left trying to understand why and what really happened to her. Well, that's why we're here this season. I'm getting a lot of emails saying, why aren't we dealing with the other theories, like the more malice ones? You know, believe me, we'll start getting to those other areas. But just remember, the DA report does not even mention, really, the Kennedys, the mob, the CIA, the government. Really, it only deals with the Red Diary and the ambulance theories. So so we're just these are things that we can actually get a handle of and just so you know what we're we're doing with this radio show is we are building the foundation for when we all come together for the real life invest investigation in September and we have the pathology laid out lie, you know uh, laid out for you. We have the holes in which we're dealing with and what we still need to find out with Dr. Cyril Weck and Dr. Michael Baden who will be with us. Now we have Dr. Reef Kareem on with us. We we have the panel, Gary Vitaka who is a Maryland expert but also a mental health professional. So with this, it's the body of work and being able to look at things truthfully and without an agenda. So please keep your mind open when we are looking at this information. We all might think we know what happened to her, but it's through this, this you know, uncovering of, of work that we're really going to find out what happened. Well, the panel is back. Gary Vitaka robles best-selling author of Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. And Immortal Marylands*, Mary Jane Grey. Leslie Kaspirowitz is off this week, but we have April Via Via with us. And we are discussing not just the 641-page DA report, but this week we're jumping right in in order to get prep for Dr. Reef, who will be with us shortly. So let's recap Marilyn's main suicide attempts. That's what we talked about last week. At age 24, around a significant death, when her mentor and agent, Johnny Hyde, died. Then she had a miscarriage with Arthur Miller at age 33. And also when she was divorcing, she was institutionalized at that point uh, after her divorce with Arthur Miller at age 34. There are some other speculations in terms of uh, suicide attempts, but they're not concrete. Those are the ones that we can actually kind of pinpoint and really know with certainty that she did um, try to take her life. I just want to point out that these suicide attempts uh, each had very traumatic Incidences behind them. They did not just come out of the blue. However, a fan sent this question and in, in, uh, after reading this ex- excerpt, and I'm going to put this out to the panel. It says Marilyn had written an undated letter to Lee Strasberg while she studied at the actor's studio that seems to foreshadow her death. In it, she wrote, I think I'm going crazy. My will is weak, but I can't stand anything. I'm still lost. I Can't Get Myself Together. She made mention of suicide in his biography. Anthony Summers wrote that Marilyn made several suicide packs with various people, mostly actors or other people in the business. I'll call you and you can call me uh, if we feel like committing suicide. And these packs were made mid-career, almost up to the last year of her life. And I'll start with you, Gary. Is that true?
4: Well, I'm aware of three packs that she made with her poet friend, Norman Roston and her um, former press agent Rupert Allen, and also Lee Strasberg. And Norman Roston talks about being with Marilyn at a house party in New York where she's looking out the window at the Brooklyn Bridge, and he was concerned about her, and she made a comment about it being a long drop. She was very depressed that night, and so um, he tried to cheer her up, and they made a pact that. They would um, make an attempt to contact each other if they were ever having those thoughts. She made a similar pact um, in Reno while she was filming The Misfits in 1960 with Rupert Allen. And uh, he was her press representative um, before Patricia Newcomb. And this was probably done um, uh, on the bridge over the Truckee River in Reno where they were filming, because the suicide pact they made had a code word, which would be. Truckee River. And the only other one I'm aware of is um, her acting coach, Lee Strasberg. He had asked her to contact him if she ever had those indications because she had been over-medicated while a guest at his house, and he and his wife were very concerned about her.
3: Interesting. So, so you know, certainly at that time um, there were obvious uh, signs that uh, she could be mentally uh, unstable at certain times. Uh, but I think that's really interesting, and we when we look at the doctors' role and what they knew and didn't know, especially when prescribing these heavy, heavy, lethal drugs. Uh, so let's just break it down real quick. Dr. Greenson was her psychiatrist, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time since 1961 when she moved back from uh, New York. Dr. Siegel was the studio doctor at Fox, That and he did indeed prescribe her drugs as well. But Dr. Engelberg, Hyman Engel, Engelberg, was her main internist, and Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg agreed that Dr. Engelberg would be the one that prescribed her medicine. Dr. Engelberg was going through a nasty divorce, and they were supposed to be in constant contact about her drug intake. Well, that didn't always happen. It certainly didn't happen the night she died. Dr. Engelberg was going through a nasty divorce. Mary Jane, do you want to add some insight into that, and Gary as well, and maybe even April if you have some some things that you want to chime in on?
5: Well, we have some uh, conflicting statements from both Greenson and Engelberg. Um, Greenson had said that he didn't handle any of the prescribing and left that all up to Dr. Engelberg. And although we haven't found any prescriptions from Greenson that have surfaced, there are numerous people that do reference him writing prescriptions for her. And they were both supposed to be in contact with each other, and they made numerous statements that can be found in the DA report about how they were trying to wean her off the pills. Dr. Greenson tried saying that she had been completely off sleeping medications for the month of July, and when we go back and we look at the prescriptions that Dr. Engelberg prescribed for her, we see that as patently untrue. She was being prescribed an exorbitant amount of medication, so... Uh, a a real question comes up about why they were um, adamant that she was being weaned off the drugs when she was being prescribed such an inordinate amount of them.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that's a really good question and Mary Jane, since you're talking right now, why don't you uh, list if you can the drugs so people can really get a full scope of what she was prescribed the last several months of her death before her death. Okay,
5: we have Proof and evidence in the form of um, the actual prescriptions that were written, and they were um, auctioned off when, in, in various auctions of, of documents. So we can confirm from June 7, 1962, she was prescribed 100 hydrate, 50 librium, and 50 valmid. These are all sedatives. On June eighth, the next day, she was given another 50 librium. On June fifteenth, she was given... 100 Parnate. On June 18th, she was given 24 Percodan. On July 1st, she was given 12 Dexedrine. On July 17th, she was given 24 Darvon. On July 19th, now remember this is only, uh, her previous prescription was on the 7th for 50 Librium. And then on the 19th, she was given another 100 Librium. 50 Valmid, 25 Secondol, and 25 Twoanol. On July 25th, she was given 50 Hydrate. On July 31st, only six days later, she was given 50 more Chlorohydrate. On August 3rd, she was given 25 Nembutal, 25 Phenergan, and 36 of an unknown barbiturate. That adds up to over 700 sedatives or barbiturates in a two-and-a-half-month period.
3: Well, I'd like to see if uh, that was weaning off drugs. I'd like to see what their full dose is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, quite, uh, quite 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 uh, amazing. If you look at uh, the amount and the enormous amount of drugs and the lethal combination of chloral hydrate and nebutol, and I think that's going to be a really excellent question to uh, to ask Dr. Reef um, because I think that's a, a you know the combination of would they have known. They should have. I mean, that's just my layman, uh, you know, speculation here that they should have known what they were prescribing, given given her track record of being to potentially overdose in these drugs. And we've talked about the last two weeks. Eunice Murray, even knowing that Marilyn sometimes would over overtake her drugs and not know it, and told her to keep an eye out. For her, for that very reason. So we're going to have to take a break. There's still a lot more to cover um, before Dr. Reef gets back, uh, gets on the air with us, and we'll certainly uh, be uh, answering some more of your questions. You are listening to Goodnight Night Maryland Radio. It's the panel, and we are talking about celebrities, Marilyn, and the doctors back in August of one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-two. <music>
0: Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The Daytime Discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now, he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
2: 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com
1: the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com Listening to Good Night Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to Maryland Live Talk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show.
3: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Good Night Maryland Radio. Uh, we have been talking about celebrities, Marilyn, and the doctors. We are now going to continue the conversation as we're going to add Dr. Reef. Kareem, psychiatrist and addiction specialist who will be joining us in just a few minutes uh, and he is a leader in pio- and pioneer in the fields of general psychology and mental health, relationship therapy and addiction medicine. He is the assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA Semel Institute of Neuroscience, a senior attending physician at the UCLA Medical Center and the founder and medical director of the Control Center in Beverly Hills, a cutting edge, integrated, out patient treatment center for chemical dependency, behavioral mm-hmm. addictions, sex love, gambling, shopping, food fame, you name it, relationship therapy, he does it all. Dr. Reef has been called a medical messenger in pop culture. and uh, and his medical and psychological expertise centers on the world of sex and relationships. He is on our investigation team, and it is a vital component to the real-life investigation as he really speaks the doctor's behavior, whether it is back in 1962 or in today's practices. What was or should have been the doctor's responsibility in their role of how they played in Maryland's care? But before we get we bring him on, I just want to read from the DA report uh, what they got from Dr. Lipman. Uh Dr. lipman provided the investigator with a, a report of lipman's interview with Dr. Greenson and a copy of the summary report sent to the coroner's office. The summary report related the following. During the last two or three weeks of July Dr. Ingelberg who was in charge of the prescription of medication while Dr. Greenson handled the psychotherapy began to cautiously try out nebutol again to help Miss Monroe sleep as a prescription for 25 grams one and a half capsules of nebutol was given Miss Monroe on July 25th and it was refilled on August 3rd. Dr. Lippman's report to investigators related the following. She received a prescription for 25 Nebutal tablets from Dr. Siegel, filled August 3, 1962, and found empty in her bedroom. And 50 chloral hydrate capsules refilled July 31st, 1962 from Dr. Engelberg. There was 10 chloral hydrate capsules remaining. So when you look at this, um, you know, Dr. Lipman uh, didn't really have uh, ability to talk about the discrepancies at that time. He didn't really, uh, you know, he says he, Dr. Lipman, uh, when he interviewed Engelberg, stated that he may or may not have Prescribe Nebutal. Well, we already know that he did. So it's very interesting. The very laxidazial kind of like, oh, well, I might have, I might not have. Whereas you look at today's, um, you know, investigation with Prince's death. You know, the one thing that they, comp- you know, that they uh, that they took uh, from the doctor's office was his records. So with that said, let's welcome Dr. Reef Kareem to the show. Welcome, Dr. Reef. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you here. It's an important component, as I was saying, and let's just jump right into some of the questions that we have. Mary Jane, you wanted to talk about the nebutol and the chloral hydrate.
5: Yeah, I wanted
3: to ask um,
5: basically, what were her doctors thinking by prescribing both nebutol and chloral hydrate simultaneously? And, I mean, in modern day psychiatry, what are the ethical ramifications of prescribing like that?
6: Well, you know, the big picture here is that she was on a lot of medications that slow respiratory drive, and that's really the bottom line. Like, back, back then, there's, there's two types of medicine that are prescribed in psychiatry. There's very cosmetic, cutting-edge, looking at the right medication for the right person if you need meds on top of, you know, psychotherapy and other things, and then there's kind of the throw the meds against the wall and see what sticks kind of mentality, which I highly don't recommend, but sounds like was the case here. When you've got celebrity behavior, you've got someone who's well-known, they get special care. They don't necessarily get good care. And the special care means I'm in pain or I need to sleep or I'm really stressed out, give me something. Give me something right now. Give me something. Give me something. Give me something. something. So what the doctors have a lot of pressure on them to prescribe. In this case, you're looking at Chlorohydrate, which is an old-school sleeping medication that has a long half-life, that doesn't necessarily interact that well with other medications. And then you've got different barbiturates. You've got, you know, the second all, the nembutol, you've got two all, you've got a, a, a large number of, of uh, barbiturates, which also slow the respiratory drive. Barbiturates are like an old-school version of the sedative hypnotics we have now, the Xanaxes and Adivants and Clonopins and, you know, the, the, uh, the Valiums that we have now. Back then, people used to use barbiturates much more. Now, when you combine these medications, you've got a really high risk of overdose, a really high risk of respiratory depression, and then when, you're, when you stop breathing, you end up going into cardiac arrest. So when you hear a lot of these celebrities, like I, I've, been interviewed many times on everyone from Michael Jackson to Heath Ledger to Whitney Houston to, you know, it, when there is an overdose, you tend to get uh, the, the cause of death is cardiac arrest, but it's because of the respiratory depression associated with these medications. In this case, taking nebutol and chlorohydrate together is really problematic, and especially because they both have long half-lives. The, the nebutol half-life is between 15 and 48 hours, so imagine you're in pain you take a medication or you're stressed out or you want to sleep. You take one medication, it's got a 40-some hour half-life, and then you're like, well, I still can't sleep or I'm still stressed out. So then you ask for a different medication on top of it that also has a really long half-life. You're just looking at the subjective experience of did it work or did it not work, but you're not thinking about the stacking effect of what these medications could have from a side effect profile.
3: So, Dr. Reef, quick question on in regards to that. Then, would Dr. Engelberg, back in his day, know that?
6: Yeah, back that's a 19... really good question. I mean, the the half life is the half life, and I think when you know when pharmaceutical companies make medications and they get approved uh, to be legitimate medication, they have to have a certain amount of data there, and that that data includes their half life and their side effect profile. Now, it's not going to be as voluminous as as it is now or comprehensive as it is now but you're still going to have basic measures there to get approved so yeah the doctors would absolutely have known that
3: and another quick question before we get to gary's question you know there's 900 pills here that she was prescribed in two months 700 of them being sedatives they were saying and they claimed soon after her death that they were weaning her off the drugs what would you say to that
6: Yeah, that's, that's BS. I mean, to, to say, to give somebody, yeah, I don't know the exact numbers of pills, so I'm just going to believe you on it, but it's 700 pills over that kind of time period. It's totally ridiculous. It's, it's, it's poly, we call it polypharmacy where somebody just, just, they just keep giving and giving and giving pills and not thinking about the responsibility or the accountability of a patient. Also, There's a big difference between giving somebody medications that does not have a mental health disorder. Like, let's say somebody has a, a chronic pain issue, but they're not identified as a chronic pain patient. Like, they had an acute injury, and it's lingering, and they still need some meds. You could give them hopefully a shorter supply of meds, not giving 100 pills at a time or a couple hundred pills at a time. But now also you've got these diagnoses of bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder, which means there might be erratic mental health in addition, which means they might not take their meds appropriately, especially if they're in a manic phase or a depressed phase or a borderline crisis. And, you know, I was looking through all the meds, and there's no mood stabilizer that I've seen in her medication regimen. There's Parnate, which is uh, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and uh, an antidepressant. But that medication, if given to somebody who has bipolar disorder, can actually trigger them or switch them into a manic episode because it's not a true mood stabilizer. It's an antidepressant that can actually make you worse. And, and move you into a manic phase. So, if she's in a manic phase, she's going to take whatever pills that she feels like taking. If she's in a borderline crisis, a lot of borderlines attempt suicide. Doesn't mean they complete it, but they, they might feign suicide. Uh, and then, with the number of pills you've got here, this could easily, easily have been an accidental overdose.
3: So, that's a, a good uh, transition into our next question, Gary.
6: Hi, Dr. Reef.
4: I've got to preface my question with the fact that that Marilyn seems to have had the symptoms consistent with borderline personality and and on the bipolar spectrum, and I don't think she was accurately diagnosed at the time on the the bipolar spectrum. But I'm aware of recent studies showing that 95% of completed suicide victims do have a mental illness, and in 25% of those making near-fatal attempts, the actual decision to end their lives occurs less than five minutes before the attempt, and for 70%, they make the decision within an hour of the attempt. So I'm asking your opinion regarding um, a hypomanic, manic, or mixed episode possibly playing into Marilyn executing an (laughs) impulsive suicide at this point in
6: her life. Yeah, I I mean, what I would say is that, first off, it might be an accidental overdose, but if it was to be an impulsive act of suicide. The best way to predict suicidal behavior is past suicide attempts. That's the first thing. And the second thing is impulsivity is absolutely increased by substances, by alcohol or some other altered substance or some kind of neurochemical shift in the brain. And very often, borderline personality leads to higher levels of impulsivity, Uh, problematic uh, serotonin levels to, there's a serotonin uh, metabolite, uh, which, uh, which low levels of it predicts a higher level of impulsivity. And a manic state or a hypomanic state uh, elicits higher levels of, uh, of impulsivity and poor impulse control. So absolutely, that, that is correct. If, if she was in that, uh, that state of mind, she would have a much higher level of uh, impulsivity.
3: So another question we have, too, is about the hydrate that she took, about 17, but not all remained in the bottle. Uh, Gary, you wanted to talk a little bit more about that, if she would have taken the hydrate first.
4: Yeah, we, we have a question about the hydrate because um, not all of it was taken, and it was photographed in the sunroom of her house, whereas we were told um, her hoarding of medication were on the bedside table. So, you know, we're not sure if it was moved to take this picture or if indeed she had taken it while in the sunroom and then retired to her bedroom where she may have then ingested the entire contents of the Nembutal vial. So depending upon the time period between those two events, you know, we were wondering about 17 chloral hydrates, you know, would would it have rendered her disoriented? Could we determine how many she would have needed to fall asleep or pass out? Because it didn't seem to be in a... A uh, Fatal level, that seemed to be more of a toxic level.
6: You know, it's, it's hard to know because 17 chlorohydrates on their own, depending on the person, if the person doesn't have tolerance to the medication, then that can be a significant amount. Uh, toxic versus fatal, probably leaning more towards toxic, but you never know. Uh, if, if, if they're giving 17 chlorohydrates on top of nebutal, or some other meds that also cause respiratory depression and you've got med-med interactions, then all bets are off. That could be a fatal level. So it really depends on what's in the system. And it also depends on the, the bioavailability in that person's body based on how, you know, how, how big they are and how they process medications.
4: And I think we would have to assume she had a high tolerance because she was being prescribed 100 at a time within
6: short periods of time between the prescriptions.
3: Yeah. It, and, yeah and April, what was that? It's
6: a report of what, what was in her system at that time besides, say, There, You know, if there's a lot of different medications in, in, in the system, then you have all sorts of med-med interaction uh,
3: possibilities. April, you wanted to talk about Dr. Lippman. As as he stated, uh, he was the head of the suicide prevention team. He was talking about uh, that uh, that Marilyn did not have a physical addiction. Do you want to ask that question?
5: Yeah. Um, so Dr. Lippman said in the report that um, she had a daily dependence on sedative type drugs, but among addicts would not have been considered an addict. She had no physical dependence, but a psychological dependence. Is it? I don't see how it's possible that she couldn't have some type of physical dependence. Can you explain that a little bit better?
6: Well, I think what I can explain here is what that means. When he says that, he's basically saying if you look up in the DSM-5, you know, we don't have uh, dependence and abuse anymore. That was in the DSM-4. But now we have, you know, mild and moderate and severe levels of a a use disorder, like a a benzodiazepine use disorder, a barbiturate use disorder. But nonetheless, for, for someone to say that they don't have a physical dependence or, in other words, an addiction to that problem, and they're only psychologically connected or abusing that drug, means that they don't believe, this doctor does not believe they have tolerance or withdrawal or uh, taking larger numbers to get the same effect, or um, social occupational functioning problems, or uh, spending a lot of time getting the drug, using the drug, and withdrawing from the drug, and inability to cut down from the drug. And I find it really hard to believe that she's getting these large number of pills does not have tolerance, does not have withdrawal, does not have social and occupational functioning or an inability to cut down. It just doesn't make any sense.
3: All right. Well, on that note, let's take a short break. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Reef Kareem, psychiatrist and addiction specialist. The panel's asking some very compelling questions here. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment. Mm-hmm.
0: Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The Daytime Discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now, he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
2: 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. (laughs) Voiceamerica.com. Listening to Good Night Marilyn Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to Maryland Live Talk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show.
3: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Goodnight Maryland Radio. With me, the panel Mary Jane Gray from Immortal Maryland, April Via Via, as well as Gary Vitaco Robles, best selling author of Icon, Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. We also have our psychiatrist on the investigation team, addiction specialist, Dr. Reef Kareem, who's been adding some invaluable insights. So let's just jump right back into the questions. Mary Jane, you had a question for Dr. Reef. Yes, um, we've
5: done some research, and we found that there have been a handful of cases that manner of death was designated as probable suicide, and we were just wondering if, in your experience, have you ever seen an overdose death classified as such, Um, and what is the most likely classification you see for overdose deaths?
6: Yeah, I've I've been in on, on, obviously, when you work in the mental health field, you're going to be in on some level of suicide at some point. Uh, and in the hospital and at different treatment centers, there's definitely been suicidality and suicide attempts and completions. Uh, the majority of the time you're looking for evidence of whether that person intended to take their life or not. So it, obviously a note or a phone call or a text message or some kind of indication that that's the direction they were going. I, and also reports, like previous reports of a, a attempted suicide, uh, talking about suicide a month before, a week before, a day before, a couple hours before. When you don't have any of that, then you have to look at the evidence of what that person was taking. And if you surmise that they had enough medications on board prescribed to them, that there was the possibility of an overdose without the intention of an overdose. Uh, so let's say somebody is prescribed, let's say they're overprescribed and they're taking, uh, instead of taking three times a day a medication that can cause respiratory depression like a barbiturate uh, or a really intense sleeping aid, that they take maybe five or six times more because they had a really hard time sleeping or they were in a lot of pain and they took a narcotic analgesic uh, because of that. Now, if you could look at the toxicology report, generally you should be able to know somebody took 40 pills versus taking 8 pills. Uh, you should be able to look at the levels uh, and and look at their liver and look at their blood blood levels to see, all right, this looks like within the realm of possibility of somebody that was just in a lot of pain and they were just trying to relieve their pain in a short term and this looks like an accidental overdose versus somebody that took 40 or 50 pills and it looks like either a borderline suicide attempt which many of the times from a borderline personality perspective is not a true I'm going to kill myself. It's more I want help and I don't know any other way of communicating the fact that I need help, so I'm going to cut on my wrist or I'm going to take more pills than I should because I want help from someone. Or it could be a true suicide attempt.
3: So here's one of the things to add to the conversation as well is from the pathology, we now know that Marilyn did not die suddenly. So when she took all those pills, she died over time. That was over uh, a few hours, right? And then the other thing I wanted to ask you in regards to that, would somebody that was intentionally wanting to take their life, whether it's borderline uh, or borderline personality attempt or a straight suicide, put the caps back on the bottles, is that a norm with somebody you know,
6: that's a that's a hard one to say because impression management is really important in some people, like impression management and presentation so if somebody's really, really impulsive and and is if if they were like i think one of your one of your panelists mentioned it. If, if they're really impulsive, they're going to be floppy about it. They're going to be like they're already altered. They're going to be floppy. They're not going to put caps back on. They're just going to down a bunch of pills and hope they take their effect. But there's other people that are more predetermined in the way that they do things. And they also have some level of impression management where, and then this goes to how she was found as well, which I think might be a question you guys have, but it's uh, what state she was in when she was found. When somebody has more of that impression management, they're thinking through how they're, they might be seen when people find them. There's there's almost a, a I don't want to say a fantasy, like a positive fantasy, but almost like a, a predetermined, okay, my, my life will be better when I'm not around anymore. And so when that happens, I wonder if it's going to find me and uh, maybe I should clean up a little bit or I should put the pill... The caps back on, or or this is the way I want to be seen when when I get found. Uh, so there's there's that component too. So it's it's really hard to say one way or another. But I will say some people are very impulsive and sloppy about it, and other people are very predetermined.
3: Well, let's add to that because I think that what you are talking about that's why this is so conflicting. Because on one hand, you're finding all the caps on the on the bottles put back on, and then it's how she was found. So Gary, you have some good insight into that.
4: Yes, Marilyn, um, she was found nude um, and somewhat unkempt. It stated that she needed a manicure and a pedicure. And, you know, we've done some research, and we really can't find much data on um, suicide and nudity, aside from Robert Simon's 2008 article. And he mm-hmm. writes about deliberate self-harm without the intent to die, not usually inflicted while naked, but such an attempt would imply a high risk for suicide and severely depressed people Maybe expressing vulnerability and worthlessness through the nudity that the nudity could be uh, an indication of disorientation or impulsivity or the person making an attempt at the moment that they were nude. So um, would you comment what we might be able to imply by Marilyn um, being found in the nude?
6: Yeah, I think, uh, I think what you guys said is really accurate that it's, there's there's conflicting reports here. On one side of it, you've got this sense of the evidence, this sense of impulsivity, uh, nude, cat unca- uh, you know, like a, a slightly what you said about the manicure and and yeah. not not looking presentable for people that are going to find her. Uh, and potentially with that potential disorientation or whatever it is, because that person didn't have either enough time or the wherewithal to put themselves together, so to speak, and that leads more towards impulsivity. But then on the other side of it, you've got predetermined putting the caps on, and also, from what I've read, she's pretty comfortable being nude. So if she was well put together and nude, I would think, well, that's just part of how she wanted to be found. Uh, whereas if she wasn't kept well, and was nude. Perhaps that was more of an impulsivity issue. So it's really hard to determine between the two.
3: Well, let me just say this: what we know of Marilyn and just what she was. She went through a, a you know, a fine-tooth comb with every photo. She was not one to put something out there unless she wanted it. Uh, so I, I, I would say, based on how we know her personality. Um, her intentionally being found that way was, and, I, and I'll, you know, uh, ask the panel this, this would not be something that she would have wanted unless it was something that was more impulsive. I cannot imagine, based on what we know of her, that she would want to be found publicly like this. Correct, hmm. panel? Well, I
4: guess I would have to ask if she were really severely depressed and at the point where that no longer mattered.
3: Yeah, no, I'm yeah. just saying that. But that day, we don't have reports that she was severely depressed based on the people that were talking to her. She was up and down and up and down. I'm not saying that there wasn't an impulsive aspect of it. But I'm talking about intentionally going into August 4th saying, I'm going to commit suicide and this is what I want to do. Um, and so that's where the conflict and part of the mystery comes in and why we're talking about this case 53 years Plus years later. Uh, so Mary Jane, you had some more questions as well. Oh, um, yeah, I had a question in regards to,
5: again, um, the doctors and um, Dr. Reef, if you had seen a, a similar case to Marylands today um, with the same prescription uh, prescribing practices, what would be the ramifications and accountability of the doctors?
6: Well, we're in a totally different world, and I don't mean just from, like, 53 years ago. I mean from, like, three years ago. <laughs> because <laughs> three to five three to five years ago, a doctor could be prescribing, over-prescribing, and there really wouldn't have been a lot of accountability. And, you know, I was just on uh, CNN talking about, in this case, the prince, uh, the prince uh, passing. And there is a lot more accountability on doctors now. They're getting civilly prosecuted, they're getting criminally prosecuted for prescribing, being a prescribing mill or over prescribing to the point where it's not within the realm of possibility or at all the standard you know, care of standard practice. So now doctors are being scrutinized by looking at the amount of pills. Let's say somebody would need at most three pills a day, which means they, they should be getting 90 pills for the month, and the doctor's prescribing 400 that's a problem. Uh, And if somebody's on 700 medications that are all related to barbiturates or benzodiazepines, that is hypnotics or some other kind of, you know, medication that's going to cause respiratory depression, they would be at a very minimum flagged and looked at by the DEA. Uh, And at at a maximum, potentially prosecuted in, in today's culture because it's a, it's a different world that we live in. I think back then, you have to look at how doctors are as well. It, I think back then, the doctor was the gatekeeper of your care, and you didn't question your doctor. You just did it. And especially if you're a celebrity, you, uh, you were able to access medications because of the power of the prescription pad that that doctor has. Nowadays, I mean, I'm always preaching to patients, Ask your doctor what you are taking that medication for. You are ultimately responsible for what you put in your body. You are, not because the doctor gave it to you. So we, we question it. Now we've got the Internet to look things up, and it's, it's a different world. But back then, it was like doctor knows it, and so you do it.
3: Yeah, and, and also, you know, adding to that, just so you know, Dr. Engelberg said he did not prescribe her chlorohydrate, but as I said, we had the prescriptions as well as the estate invoices. What do you think would happen to Dr. Hyman Engelberg today if it was in 2016 standards?
2: Well,
6: what, what people do now when there's a big celebrity case, and this is what's happening with Prince right now, is you track, you track the prescription bottle. And you look at who prescribed what, and if with the patient doctor shopping, where the doctors didn't know that, that there were other doctors prescribing the same types of medications, was all of the medications coming through one pharmacy? And if so, who were the doctors prescribing for that patient? Does it seem like the doctors were doing shady things, or were they just being fooled by that patient? You know, what, what's happening right now? And if they can track it back, that there was a doctor that was over-prescribing significantly, not just a little bit, but you know, really over, obviously the doctor knew what they were doing. You saw what happened with Conrad Murray in the Michael Jackson case. Um, If that doctor was negligible in regards to, and and was actually doing harm to that patient, then uh, then that's a problem. And that doctor will have some kind of ramifications, whether it's losing their license or being prosecuted in some way, or at a minimum being put on probation.
3: Gary, do you want to add uh, a question to this?
4: Um, Well, we we know that that Greenson uh, was aware that Marilyn had a very serious depressive episode in September of 61, where she talked about retiring from the film industry, killing herself, and he had to place nurses in her apartment and control her medications because he really felt she was potentially suicidal. She went through another um, major depressive episode in May of 62, shortly before her death when he uh, went abroad and his children found her in crisis and had to contact his office partner to intervene. And I'd like, I'd like your opinion on, on and that information um, and how that's related to all of these meds, because Greenson also told the suicide prevention team that he and Engelberg had apprehension about her overdosing and that when he saw her that last day, he was very tense that he had to leave her, um, he didn't feel comfortable, but he had an engagement. He didn't sleep well that night, and when he re- received a phone call at three in the morning um, from the housekeeper, he actually believed it was probably Marilyn in crisis.
3: And so, also, Eunice and also Eunice Murray was told to spend the night that night to watch her, and actually didn't check on her. So, your thoughts on that? Because we're getting close to the end of the show.
6: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I, I'll try to summarize it. So. The doctors are even more culpable because they had a history of this. You've got an episode in 61 of the, a major depressive episode. You've got another one in 62. They, they had nurses at her place. They thought she was suicidal potentially at that point. You have a suicide prevention team. I mean, yeah, you didn't have anti-craving meds so to speak, at that time. And she wasn't on a mood stabilizer, which is really weird, uh, because you would think she would be on that medication because that's what you need to, to contain the bipolar disorder. Uh, but the combination of bipolar disorder and borderline personality, if she truly has those, make her very, very unpredictable and very impulsive. And you have a suicide prevention team, yet you're prescribing her a whole bunch of medications that could kill her. You know, as opposed to medications that are a little safer on an overdose, you're giving her a whole bunch of meds that could kill her on an overdose. So uh, it just, it, yeah, it's just a bad recipe for somebody who might have suicidal thoughts. And, you know, the, the other thing that I'll say is this is a true dual diagnosis case, and I agree with the other panelists that if she was really in a major depressive episode right before the death, then she, would be, she wouldn't take care of herself. She, she wouldn't care how she was found. She wouldn't want to get out of bed, and she wouldn't really care about anything around her and might see the only way out as, uh, you know, taking a whole bunch of pills.
3: Quick question. She was with people that day up until about 5 or 6 o'clock when Dr. Greenson came for a few hours, and then she went to bed. Um, she was functional that day. Would the, would the impulsivity of that be um, she didn't care in the last few minutes or hours of her life, or would, that be, would you have signs of it during the day? Here's the really interesting
6: thing that most people don't know. If somebody's seriously, seriously, seriously depressed, like they can't get out of bed, they're really, really bad, they're probably not going to commit suicide because they don't have the energy to commit suicide. Once they elevate their level of energy a little bit and get a little bit better, that's when they're mo- most prone for suicidality. So you know like we hear about, certain antidepressants might cause suicidality, yeah, it might be the actual molecular structure of the antidepressant, but it might just as likely be they're pulling, the, and the antidepressant is pulling them out of their depressed state just enough so they have enough energy, because they're still depressed, they have enough energy to do something about their depression. So that might have taken, you know, that might be germane to this as well.
3: All right, one last question, and we have to go because we have to end the show. Based on what you know now, suicide, accidental, or undetermined, based on what we talked about today?
6: It's so hard to know this. I mean, I, when I look at the evidence in some ways, I think accidental overdose because she was on so many meds that she was probably in some emotional pain and was on a ton of meds. But when you put, this, this is the dual diagnosis part, when you put together the uh, borderline personality where a lot of people attempt suicide and the bipolar disorder that was unregulated because she wasn't on a mood stabilizer, then, you know, you could almost look at, like, uh, a dual diagnosis-based suicide, which could also be accidental because she was unmanaged for her mental
3: health problems,
6: uh, but it could just as easily be a suicide attempt. It's, it's I, I can't. We don't
3: know. We don't know, and, and that's
6: interesting. Is that I could see evidence for all three.
3: Interesting. There you have it. Dr. Reef Kareem, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be excited to have you in the fall to, to continue this conversation and get some more information. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the show today. No problem. Thank you, guys. All right, the panel, they asked some really compelling questions. Please share this uh, radio show with your friends. Very compelling in terms of the mental health around Maryland. That wraps up this week's show. I want you to join us next Friday, 10 a.m., as we continue the conversation in season three. Until next time, I'm Nina Boski for Goodnight Maryland Radio. Remember, never stop dreaming. <laughs>
1: Thank you for joining us for today's show. Good Night, Maryland Radio with Nina Bosky can be heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to tune in again next week.